Jesus is alive today. For real, Jesus is alive today. I think if I had all the money in the world, the first car that I would buy would be a 1980 Datsun 210. Look at that beauty. Now, I would buy it in light blue like the car that I grew up in uh, as a kid. Me and my two brothers, man, did we fight in the back seat of that car. Now, I, I would point out to you that this picture has the windows rolled down because there are no pictures in existence of a Datsun 210 with the windows rolled up. It had no air conditioning. So they, I don't even know if they have windows. We never knew whether they did or not. But that's the car that I would get. Now, I was thinking, you know, Maybe I should look around and see if I could get one of those cars. Uh, see if there's anything available in the area. See if I, I could get that. Uh, and I thought, you know, that would be a good-looking car for a single guy like me to, to drive around. Because if I drove that car home, I would be a single guy uh, driving that around. But after I bought that car, uh, since I have all the money in the world, I, I think that the second car that I get would, would be this one. Oh, look at that car. That, that is a 1961 Ferrari 250 GT California Spider, as seen in the beloved movie Ferris Bueller's Day Off. There's only one of, 50, this one of 56 ever made. When I was looking this up, it says that one had recently sold for $10.9 million. And then I saw that another one had sold since then for over $23 million. If you remember the movie, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, this is one of the premises, this is one of the themes in the movie, is that a car that beautiful, a car that perfect, a car that great, isn't supposed to be locked up in a garage. Now, I don't necessarily know it's supposed to be driven around town by a 16-year-old either, but a car that great is not supposed to be locked up in a car never used. If it exists, if it has greatness to it, if it has wonder to it, it needs to be on the road. It needs to be driven. You need to take it someplace. Am I right? Most of us are never going to really get to vote on that, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> but as I was thinking about that this week... My thoughts went to the fact that I think that there are some doctrines that we believe, but that we treat like a classic car that stays in the garage. And what I mean by that is when I think about the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I think that sometimes we treat that doctrine the same way we do this priceless car. We, we believe it, we own it, we claim it, and we park it in a garage and walk by and look at it every once in a while but we never actually take it out on the road. We, we never actually put it in the place where it makes a difference. In fact, if I were asked the congregation this morning, how many of you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? I think the vast majority of people in the congregation this morning would say, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I believe that that happened. If I were to ask that question in churches across the country this morning and around the world, I think most people would say, yes, I agree that the resurrection of Jesus Christ happened. But I think we leave that doctrine, we leave that belief in the garage far too often without actually putting it on the road, without putting it on the application of our lives. I want you to think with me to the 23rd Psalm. And I want you to think, what would it be if the 23rd Psalm finished one sentence early? 
The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk to the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before, the, before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. It's a great word. It's a great promise. It's a great encouragement to us. That by itself would be a great faith. But that's not where it finishes. It says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You see, here's the good news this morning. Jesus' resurrection contains the promise of my resurrection. Jesus' resurrection contains the promise of my resurrection. So as much as we talk about the fact that Jesus is raised from the dead, Jesus is alive today, Jesus is here for real, as much as we say that, the truth is that that also speaks to the fact that you and I, in Christ, also have a resurrection that's coming to us. Take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And verse 14, here in the central verse of this passage says, Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. The resurrection of Jesus contains my resurrection. Paul wants that church in Corinth to know and to understand that as Jesus was raised, so too will we be raised. But that's not the first time that he tells that story to the church in Corinth. In fact, in a previous letter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20, he says this to the church. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, and the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus comes first in the resurrection, but we come after that. Church, know that Jesus is alive today for real, and his resurrection contains my resurrection. But Paul also says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14, uh, he says, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Again and again he tells the church in Corinth. Again and again he tells churches that he writes to every single time. He tells them about the fact that as Christ was raised, we too will be raised. Now, where would Paul get an idea like that? It might have been from Jesus. Because Jesus says in John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, he says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Jesus' resurrection contains my resurrection as well. What does that mean for us? It means so many different things, but I want us to kind of unpack the passage here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I kind of want us to just see a few things that Paul points out here and says this is the difference that the resurrection makes in our lives today. So let's jump in. The first thing that he would say is that the resurrection promised to me 
keeps me going in hard times. The resurrection promise to me keeps me going in hard times. Now, I don't know what it is that you picture when you picture Paul of the New Testament. I don't know when we read this and we talk about Paul and you think about Paul writing these letters. I don't know whether you're the kind of person who never creates a visual image or I don't know whether you jump in and you have a very detailed visual image. I don't know what it is that you see when we talk about the Apostle Paul, but here's what I'm convinced. There is a high likelihood that whatever your image of the Apostle Paul is, it's prettier than it was in real life. But whatever it is that you envision for Paul, it is quite likely prettier than what it was in real life. And I'm not trying to pick on Paul, but I'm just saying this is one exhausted and worn out dude. This is a guy who has been through the ringer. This is the guy who has experienced just about all of the hardship that life can give it. If you just begin with his travels, Everywhere and you go in the back of your Bible and you see uh, the, the little maps and the little dotted lines and Paul went from here to here to here. He, he didn't take an Uber on those trips. He walked those trips. He went through some difficult times. He went over mountains in those difficult things. He went on uh, by ship and was nearly shipwrecked and was shipwrecked multiple times. Uh, all of those things unfold. It was a harsh way to live his life. But probably as much as the external situations were some of the relational things that he dealt with. Paul, growing up as a devout Jew, has an encounter with Jesus Christ. And because of his encounter with Jesus Christ, the people that he grew up with reject him. And in fact, the people that he grew up with have now made it their goal to silence Paul. They don't want Paul to speak anymore. And so his own people, the Jewish people, are seeking to silence him, imprison him, and in some cases to execute him. Paul also has to deal with conflict wherever he goes. He has to deal with conflict with the Roman authorities. Now the Roman authorities really didn't care what Paul believed. They really didn't care what Paul preached as long as nobody else cared what Paul preached. But when Paul showed up, he had a way of dividing communities. And when he would show up and he said, listen, let me tell you what I've learned about Jesus. Let me tell you about my experience with Jesus. Let me tell you how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. There would be a bunch of people that say, wow, that's true. And there would be a bunch of people that would buy in. And there would be a bunch of people that would absolutely buy out. And there would be a conflict inside of the city. And then the Roman authorities would care a great deal. And they would say, listen, life is just going to be easier if we throw this guy in jail. And the jails that he would find, that he would spend a huge chunk of his adult life in, they were not pretty environments. There was no one from some human rights organization making sure that he got uh, enough daylight and that he got enough nutrition and he got three square meals and that he had a safe and sanitary place to be. It was a hole in the ground. And there was no sense of protection for his life. And that kind of experience would wear him out. But even as Paul would try to lean in to his new people, the people that he had told about Jesus, the people that he had become pastor to. Well, people are going to people. And Paul found himself 
in conflict with the people that he had told about Jesus, but they didn't like the way that he did it, or they didn't like some conclusion about it, or someone else was trying to take the limelight from Paul. And in fact, when we take a look at these letters that we're looking at right now, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, they are nothing but a one-sided presentation of conflict that Paul had with this church. They were trying to reject him. They were trying to argue with him. They were trying to take his place. They were trying to to reconfigure his theology. And everywhere that Paul went, it was just exhausting. In fact, that's the reason why this passage sounds the way it does here in verse 7. In verse 8, it says, We are afflicted. We are perplexed. We are persecuted. We are forsaken. We are struck down. He says all of those things. Several months ago, we looked at this book and we looked at the first chapter of 2 Corinthians. In the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, listen, you need to know some of the things that I've been through. And he begins to list the hardships that he's faced. And he says, listen, you guys honestly got to know that it was so hard and it was so difficult We didn't know if we were going to make it, and we didn't even know if we could stay alive. And so Paul writes, and he says, we are afflicted, we are crushed, we are persecuted, we are struck down. But he also wants you to know that while he says, we may not live He also says, we may not live, but we will not quit. Because here's what he says. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but we are not forsaken. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. Now, how is it? That Paul can go through all of this hardship, all of these difficulties, all of these confrontations that he deals with that rings the life out of him that that I think leaves him so exhausted that he looks like one of those athletes stumbling to the finish line. How is it that he stays so encouraged and renewed and committed? And that is the reason is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that is inside of him. Verse 7 here in this passage says that we have this treasure. And what he means by treasure is he means the power, the energy, the, the awesomeness, the glory, the strength of Jesus and his resurrection. He says we have that inside of us. And so when we face all of these difficulties, we are not without hope. We are not going to bend. We are not going to quit because we have that glory inside of us. Now he says that glory, that power, that hope, that strength that's inside of us. He says we have that in, well, we, we have that in jars of clay. Now what does he mean by jars of clay? What he means is these brittle, cheap receptacles 
There was no Tupperware in Paul's day. You just had to knock out as many of these little jars as possible, put things in there, and then if they broke, then you'd just start over again. In fact, archaeologists today spend their entire lives putting together these jars of clay. No archaeologist ever finds a whole jar. It's always the little pieces. If you've been to the museums, you see little pieces, and they're putting them together, and they're building them back together. That's because they were so brittle. Think about those ornaments that your mama was so concerned about on the Christmas tree, those brittle, tiny things. Well, we'd have just one set of those that were from way back, but every year when we opened up the box, man, they looked like, like shredded wheat at the bottom of the box. They, they had been crushed, they had been touched, and they were in pieces. It's brittle. Paul says we have this glory, this strength, this power, this wonder, this awesomeness of Jesus and his resurrection, but it's held in jars of clay and this brittleness and that brittleness, fragileness is the body that we live in. But understand this body carries that wonder, that glory, that strength and power of Jesus and his resurrection. And here's what happens. Here's what Paul knows. Here's what encourages Paul. He knows for sure that if something happens to his body, to this particular jar of clay, and it gets crushed to the point of no recovery, then what gets released from that is the power of Jesus and his resurrection. Because living inside of every believer is that resurrection power because Jesus' resurrection contains my resurrection. And if the day comes when my life is crushed, what will be released in that moment is the power of Jesus and his resurrection and for every believer in Christ. The resurrection promise to me keeps me going in hard times. But I would also tell you that the resurrection promise to me builds up my faith. Builds up my faith. Now, we have two different words that we can use in church. There are words that we can use such as believe. And there are words that we can use such as know. And I think most of us can see like there are two different words or two different experiences. There are the things that I believe and there are things that I know. But I want you to notice here in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 4. Paul says, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believe so I spoke. That's a quotation from the book of Psalms. He says, so we have that same spirit as the book of Psalms. I believe so I spoke. He says, we also believe and so we speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us up with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. You see, sometimes we think of the word believe and we think of the word know, but I want you to see how Paul uses these words. He uses them interchangeably. To believe in his life is the same thing as to know. You see, that happened back on a road to Damascus where Paul, as an unbeliever, was so committed to saying, listen, I am so tired of people talking about Jesus, and I'm so tired of people talking particularly about the resurrected Jesus. He says, I'm going to try to arrest and persecute anyone that is still telling the story of the resurrected Jesus. I am so tired of the myth of the resurrected Jesus. 
And so Paul packs all of his paperwork, packs all of his agenda, and he begins to go to Damascus, a new city, to try to get rid of the myth of the resurrected Jesus. And then all of a sudden, a bright light shines all around him and knocks him to the ground. And in that moment, in what is a little bit of an awkward conversation, the resurrected Jesus speaks to Paul. And he moved from disbelief to belief. But that disbelief to belief quickly became, I know. I know that Jesus is resurrected. It's not just what I believe. It's what I know because I have seen him. I have spoken to him. I have met the resurrected Jesus. Belief and know is the same thing. Now sometimes you and I, can have doubts. So some people may deal with doubt more often than others, but I don't know that there's any believer that never has a question of doubt. Is what I believe the right thing? Is, is, am I crazy for believing this? And one of the things that encourages us, one thing that should encourage you, is the fact that this thing that we believe is believed by people around the world. This thing that we believe, this thing that we preach, this thing that we hear, this thing that we study, this thing that we memorialize and celebrate and worship has been believed and shared for centuries. In fact, almost two millennia now, it has been shared and believed and preached and received and lived out and people have bet their life on it. But when Paul met the resurrected Jesus, Christianity wasn't even old enough to vote. It was brand new. So Paul had to make a decision for himself based on what he encountered with the resurrected Jesus. And so Paul, he says, man, the things that I believe and the things that I know, man, they're the same things. I know. I wonder where that's true in your life these days. I wonder when we take a look at our faith and the things that we believe, I wonder if there are any places in your life that there doesn't need to be a squeezing together the distance between I believe and I know. You see, the day-to-day life that we live, I think, squeezes belief out of us. Carpools and budgets and politics and all kinds of things that are just so practical, so much of this world, and so much of the conversation that surrounds us is just about this moment, this life, this time. But the things that we can see and the things that we can touch, that this day-to-day navigating of life squeezes belief out of us. And what we really need to do is that we really need to reclaim our gift, our ability to believe and to know. My challenge to you in this week is as you spend time in the Word, as you spend time in a small group Bible study, as you spend time reflecting on the truth of God, is my challenge to you is for you to take some statement from the Word of God and squeeze together, I believe and I know, until it's hard to even see the difference between those two. I believe 
I know. A great place to start is the reality that the resurrection of Jesus Christ contains my resurrection. I want you to believe that. But I also want you to walk around knowing that. And I want you to know that this world, this life extends beyond the parameters of just these days and the things that you see and the things that you cannot see. As a practice this week, say out loud when you come across the truth of God's word, I believe, I know this to be true. It's part of the way in which our faith grows. Is to say, I'm intentional. I believe it. I know it. The resurrection promise to me, and this is a good one, the resurrection promise to me defeats the decay that I see in and around me. The resurrection promise to me defeats the decay that I see in and around me. What are you talking about, Pastor? Well, I think some of us know this better than others. Others will figure it out soon enough. But look at verses 16 and following. It says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So as we look not to the things that are seen, but to, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, passing, smoke, mist. But the things that are unseen, the things that we don't see with our eyes, but we see with our heart, the things that we believe, the things that we know, those things, my friends, are eternal. So listen, it is a reality of life that this outer body doesn't do what this outer body used to do. There, there were things that, that Tim in the backseat of that Datsun 210 could do. <laughs> I'd end up in the hospital if I tried to do some of those things again. Because this outer body is breaking down. If yours isn't this week, congratulations. It's been a great week for you. But this world... This experience, and sometimes what we try to do is that we try to hoard up every bit of strength that we can. And say, I'm not going to show any signs of aging. I'm not going to show any signs of decline. I'm not going to show any of these things. And we work like crazy to try to fight those things. You know, as the athletes say, Father Time is undefeated. We can't fight that off. There's a church in Italy, and it's kind of an odd church. People go there and visit it sometimes. It's a historic church. But inside of the church, lots of folks have been buried. And a lot of times it's the monks that had served in that church in the past and in a location prior to that. But whatever it was, that whatever tradition it was that they had, they didn't really bury the folks below ground. They buried them above ground. And what you have left is that you have the exposed bones, the skeletons of all of these former folks from this church. 
And as you go into the church, the, the bones are used to decorate all over the wall. And there's artwork made out of bones. And there's stacks of bones. And, and these go back hundreds and hundreds of years. But there in that church, to those visitors that come with their cameras, there is this plaque that says, What you are now, we once were. What we are now, you shall be. This jar of clay, this tent, this temporary being is not going to last. And in fact, all the things that we spend our days chasing after that we can see and touch and feel and experience, all of those things are going to disappear. And the only things that are going to last, the only things that are going to matter are the things that we cannot see with our eyes or touch with our hands, but it's going to be the things that are eternal that we see with our hearts and we see with our soul and we see with our spirit. In fact, Paul makes sure that we don't leave this note on kind of a downer because he says in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, if this tent, he's called our body a jar of clay, a a fragile jar of clay. Now he calls it a tent, and Paul knew tents because he was a tent maker. He says, if this tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, but eternal in the heavens. You see, the resurrection promise to me defeats the decay that I see in and around me. It's not what we see here and now that matters, but we must grow in our understanding that it is the unseen things that matter. So what's our application here this morning? What's the now what? Well, a couple of quick things just to mention to you. One, I want you to be encouraged that you're a jar of clay. Fragile, brittle, somewhat temporary. Sometimes we can feel insecure about who we are. Sometimes we can feel insecure that my life isn't quite as polished as it needs to be. I don't know all the things that I need to know. I don't have the skills that I need to know. I'm not quite as sharp as that person over there or that person over there. I'm not as sharp as I used to be or as I want to be. But the reality is is that you as a jar of clay matter because you contain the presence, the power, and the glory of Jesus in his resurrection. And so it's not a matter of you being the impressive thing, but it is your life and my life displaying the wonder and the glory of God. In fact, Paul says back in verse 7, he he says you are contained in jars of clay so that you don't get the attention, but so that God gets the attention. So I want you to know whatever your story is, whatever your condition is, whatever you are today, be encouraged. Your life can display the glory and the power of God. There is no need for spiritual insecurities because your life is a display of the glory, the power of Jesus and his resurrection. I would also just encourage you to embrace the hope of the resurrection. Uh, Super practical. But as we approach sickness, 
and disease. As we approach the possibility of, of age, as we approach the possibility of our own end, the, the, the inevitableness of our own end, know that the resurrection of Jesus contains your resurrection as well. And find hope in that. Find hope in the fact that as you may be in a season of grief for a dear one in Christ, know that they too have been resurrected. Know that there is a resurrection reunion that is to come as you in Christ and they in Christ will be resurrected together in Christ. And there is wonderful hope in that. That doesn't take away loss. It doesn't make that without tears, but no, the resurrection of Jesus contains my resurrection as well. And then I would just tell you that the resurrection of Jesus gives us a connection to eternity. You see, if all there was to this life was this life, it'd be pretty exhausting. And in fact, I think that there's many, many people that are under the exhaustion of a theology and of a belief that this life is all there is. You see, in that moment, we have a couple of different ways we can go. One, if this life is all there is, then we chase after it with everything we have and we try to win this life. But the problem is this life is full of Injustice and unfairness. Other people disappoint us. We disappoint ourselves. And if we try to live our lives just trying to get to the top and to win this life, man, most of us are going to spend, feel like we're a hamster on a wheel. Everything we have, not getting anywhere. The other point of view of this life is all there is. Man, it can take a lot of the motivation out of life. If this is all there is, we just drop out and say, who cares about any of it? Let me tell you, if, if you are stuck believing that this life is all there is and you're exhausted, there's no surprise to that. Because this is an exhausting life. But Jesus says, I give you resurrection and a link to an eternity and a world that existed before us and a world that will exist after us that will fix and heal and mend all of the broken things that have exhausted us. And this morning, if you want to get out of that rat race and you want to get off that wheel and experience that resurrection of Jesus, it's here for you today. It would simply be a conversation with the living Jesus that goes something like this. Jesus, I need what your word talks about today. I need hope beyond this life. I'm bouncing into all the brokenness of my life and the brokenness of all the people around me and of this world. And I'm worn out by it. So Lord, would you make me yours?
Lord, can I live under your grace for forgiveness and under your authority for direction in my life? And Lord, starting in this moment, I want to be yours. Thank you for hearing me and receiving me today. We pray this in your name. Amen.